just stay standing for those of you in the room here and we pray together. Heavenly Father, we have seen you move. We have uh, been celebrating each Sunday as we come together that you are working and you've been working. You have never left us on our own. You're always present with us. You know our needs before we even speak them to you. That brings us great comfort. And so today we say thank you. And as we have sung about wanting to see you move and knowing that we've seen you move in the past, we pray that you would help us even today to become more in tuned with what you're doing, that we might see you and where you're working and that we perhaps would courageously join you as you continue to build your kingdom here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. You know, I've been having trouble recently with my keys. I don't know why the last month or so. Maybe it's because it's been a bit of a transition. I'm coming a little bit more into my office here in the church during the week. I have a separate uh, little ring of keys for my church keys. They're on their own a little bit. And those are the keys that I keep losing. And I don't lose them the same way every time. But probably in the last month, I would say once a week, I've lost my keys. And it's so frustrating. I don't know if you experience this, but I get so frustrated when I lose my keys. And one time it was because I locked my keys in the room that they unlock. And that's so frustrating because A, I can't look in that room because I don't have access to that room. So I don't know that the keys are actually in there. And so I'm looking everywhere else and spending all sorts of time and energy trying to find my keys that are locked in the room that the keys are supposed to open. So that was really frustrating, but eventually I had somebody let me in and I was able to find my keys. Another time, I think I just left them in the pocket of the pants I was wearing one day and then the next day I'm looking for them everywhere in the house and then finally oh, I come and it's, it's my pants pockets from yesterday. Uh, one time, and this has happened more than once, it's because my kids hide them. Oh, I know, there's gro groans in the room. People have experienced this. This is the worst. So, because kids, like, who knows where they're going to put them, right? I mean, there's a zillion places in your home that a little kid could just find a little, a little burrow, a little nook, a little cranny that they stick the keys in. So, um, this is what happened last week. Um, I couldn't find them anywhere, and I looked in all the places that I normally look for them when I can't find them in the places that they're supposed to be. And so I go to my small children, and uh, I say, hey, uh, did anybody see Daddy, Daddy's keys this morning? And uh, one of my children just kind of lit up and was like, yeah, I hid them. And this is now the whole day, like this is the end of the day. Everybody's come home from school and work and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, got to be kidding me. Okay, so then I have to explain it because kids don't understand at the age of my kids anyways. They just know, oh, this is kind of, I found these keys and I hid them and it was, it was funny. And looking back, it is kind of funny, like little scallywags, but it's not funny in the moment because I'm missing out on what I'm supposed to be doing during the day. So I'm trying to explain to my kid, oh, I know you thought this was fun and it was a little game, uh, but if daddy doesn't have his keys, daddy can't get into his office. And if daddy can't get into his office, he doesn't have access to a number of the things that he needs to do what he does during the day. And you know, daddy has, has certain things he does at work. And if I can't get into my office, I can't get to all my books and there's different resources in there. And I really need that. And so I miss out on a lot of things if I can't get into my office, if I can't get into the church. And uh, so I'm trying to explain that and, and realize how important keys can be. Today I want to talk to you about a very important spiritual keys. In fact, one of the most important parts of our spiritual life is coming to this realization and starting to learn this. It is to learn what to live for and what to die to. What do we live for and what do we die to? 
What is it that we should be putting our focus and attention? Where is it that we will find life? What do we invest in in terms of our, our uh, attention, our, our physical energy, our relational energy? Where do we want to make sure that we thrive? And what is it that we need to put away and get rid of and make sure is not part of our lives? We need to learn to die to that which will not live, ultimately, and to live to that which will never die. And this is an immense part of what the spiritual life is all about. If you read the words of Jesus, the teachings, his stories, the things that he does in terms of signs, we sometimes call miracles, the way that he taught his disciples, some of the almost cryptic sayings that he taught to them, this is what he was driving at. He would say things like, uh, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And you would say, what kind of leader says that? You need to come and die to something and follow me. Or he would say something like, if you really want to find your life, you need to lose it. You say, what? That doesn't make sense. If you really want to live, you... You need to die. And this is the counterintuitive teaching of Jesus. This is the deep spirituality that all of us need to come to terms with. This is something that we need to invest in, that we learn. We need to learn what to live for and what to die to. Today, that's what I want to talk about. And we're continuing our series where we've been teaching through the book of Ephesians, a New Testament letter. And if you have a Bible with you, uh, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and to follow along to read these deep and powerful words that we will read today, uh, where we're, we're reading uh, about the encouragement to the church, this gathering of people who were following Jesus, not all that long after Jesus had died and been resurrected. And they were allowing, hopefully, uh, the message of Jesus and everything they knew about Jesus to change them transform how they live, and hopefully to figure out the key to figuring out what do we live for and what do we die to. And I have, so far, tried to be careful in this entire series not to come up here and say, here's what I think you should do. Here are the decisions that I think you should make. Here's how I think you should live. Here are the moral implications. Because we've wanted to start with the powerful realization that we must let grace go to work on our lives. If we just kind of have a list of things and we say, here's how I think we should live. Here's what I think I should do morally. Here's the decisions I should make. I think we're not going to have uh, the real depth to be able to follow through and live out the things that we think we should do. I think if we really want to be transformed, we have to first let the good news of Jesus Everything about grace, everything that God has already given to us that's already ours just for us to receive must enter into us and we need to accept it and receive it deep within us. I believe this is going to take really our whole lives of being reminded over and over and over who God says we are, what God has done for us and put on display in Jesus. And as we allow those deep truths to change us, then we will start to practice that kind of grace in terms of our morality, our decisions, the way that we live. So I will remind you in the first couple of chapters, we learned some things about who God says that we are, what it means that God would send his son Jesus into the world to live for us, to teach us, to die for us, to be resurrected, and then to give us the Holy Spirit that was in him to empower our lives. And uh, we talked about a number of weeks ago from the first couple of chapters, what that means for who we are. We are blessed. 
God has given us his blessing. This is a gift. We are chosen. God has taken us for himself. He wants us. He values us. He's come to us to take us to himself. We are redeemed. That is, we are forgiven of the mistakes that we've made, the sins that we commit. And not only the sins that we commit, but our sinfulness, our inclination to do things that offend God and that hurt one another. We are heirs. That is, God has given us hope and a promise and a future. We are part of what he is doing in the entire cosmos, which is to bring all things back to rights, to put things back together the way that they should be. That is the trajectory of what God is doing. And we are heirs to those promises, to be a community that embodies that reality, even when we're not experiencing it in a life where we experience fallenness hurts. And we are his. We are holy. We belong to God in a beautiful, powerful, deep, and meaningful way. All of this is a gift to us. You can't earn any of those things no matter how hard you try. And the good news is you don't have to. It's already true. It's for us to simply receive, to accept. We are blessed, chosen, redeemed, heirs. We are His. We belong to Him, the God who is love. And the more we allow those things to set in, the more we focus on this amazing God who has loved us this much and put it on display in Jesus, the more that will transform us and change us. Last week, we added to those things of that list of who we are, uh, that we are not individuals trying to live out our spiritual lives on our own, or we shouldn't be but we are snorting in determination of togetherness, that we are committed even though we hurt each other, even though sometimes it's hard to be in good, deep relationship with one another, even though there's plenty of things that we could disagree on and that might, dis, uh, might uh, threaten our unity, we will be uh, powerfully committed to being together in relationship, in a community. That's what a church is. And for people who are so often, I think, powerfully committed to things like being right or to getting ahead or to getting what's mine, it is so powerful to say our determination will be towards togetherness, unity, even when we disagree, even when we're different, even when it's difficult. And now today, I want to start to dive into some of the implications of of all of that, uh, hopefully settling into our hearts and our minds and to start talking more specifically about what it looks like to live that out in community. And so I'll start reading today from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And this is where in this letter, it starts to get very practical. All the implications start to pour out relationally over the next few chapters. It says this, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of hearts, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. We're going to start here uh, with some of the negative side of things. What is it that we die to? And there is a picture here of a life that all of us have lived, all of us have experienced, continue to experience on some level. And I just want to dive into this because there's going to be a contrast. This is how uh, people live. This is how you once lived. 
but we will get to, there's a different way to live. So first, it, it talks about Gentiles. Um, oftentimes, Gentiles is a way of saying uh, for the Jewish people, many of the earlier Christians were Jewish, as Jesus was Jewish. Um, was, you know, we're Jews and they're Gentiles. So Gentiles is everyone who's not Jewish. Here, it's a little bit more specific. It's not talking so much about ethnicity, as much as it's talking about people who are living apart from Christ. And so there's a bit of a departure in how this word is used. Uh, but Gentile here is used to talk about those who are living apart from Christ. Now, be careful, because I don't think what we're supposed to do, because we're followers of Jesus, and he was pretty clear on this, is um, create this us versus them. Ah, these people living against Christ. They're bad people. That's not actually the point here. And I think what we need to do uh, is to start by asking, where does this description of life without Christ intersect with our own lives? So let's take a look at what uh, he talks about in terms of um, what that life looks like. And really, it starts with the futility of minds. Don't live this way in the futility of their minds. So what is a futility? What is futility of mind? First, it's impotent. It's futile. That means it has no power. It's empty. It doesn't go anywhere. It is a lack of perception. It's really missing out on what is meaningful, right? And so I want to have a powerful, meaningful life, but a futile mind means I am not perceiving what's really important for that way of living. We can go further because in the next uh, verse or two, we find out more about what that, what does it look like to sort of have this, this empty way of approaching life, this, this impotent way, uh, this, this, this futility of a mind. Secondly, um, darkened in their understanding. So not just impotent, but also ignorant. And again, not in a judgmental way, but in the way that there's people who are living in the dark, which means, as we all know, when you're in the dark, there's things that you can't see. Here, talking about an ignorance of reality, the way that things really are. And when I say reality, I mean the reality of God, of who God is, of what God is doing. That there are people who are not able to see who God is and what God is doing, the way that God is working in the world. Now, maybe you felt that way. You ever felt in the dark about what God is doing? That's easy when you're confused. It's easy when things aren't going well, perhaps, when you're struggling in life and you're saying, where is God? What is God up to? I, I have no idea. And you might have even thought at some point, where do I figure that out? How do I know what God is doing in my life or in my city, in the world? Am I supposed to just read the Bible? Am I supposed to pray? Is somebody supposed to tell me about this? One of the age-old questions that people ask, especially younger in life, although I think very important for us to ask the older we get, what is God's will for my life? Does God have some kind of plan, and am I part of this plan? But a lot of us can probably associate with this and say, sometimes I feel like I'm in the dark. I don't really know what God is doing. I don't know what God is like. I don't know why my circumstances are the way that they are. I'm really struggling with it. And so we could probably say, yeah, I understand what it means darking in their understanding because there's a lot of times where I don't understand what God is doing and how I fit into it or don't fit into it. And then uh, we talk about the hardness of heart. We come to verse 18. So the darkened, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. So they don't know what's going on. And it's due to this hardness of heart or they become callous. So we might start with, uh, I've got this impotent way of thinking. There's no power. I'm even ignorant. I'm not sure what God is doing and where I should be part of it. And then I've become insensitive, and this is very dangerous, to become insensitive to what God is doing. Some translations will specifically say they've become callous. 
Now, uh, if we ask some of the, the people in our band who play guitar, they would tell you what calluses are all about. Because if you set out to play guitar and you've never played guitar, or if you're going back to playing guitar and you haven't played guitar in a long time, what you find out is once you start playing is it really hurts your fingers. Right? All the, all the vibrations, all the, the, the strum, all the, you know, my fingers on the strings, that beats up your hands. And at first, it really, really hurts. And do you know what you need to do in order to become a good guitar player? Well, you have to fight through that and keep going until you start to get calluses on your fingers. And then it doesn't hurt so much. You become less sensitive on your fingers and so you can play. For guitar players, that's a really good thing. In our spiritual life, that's a really bad thing. To say I've continued along a path where maybe I, I was uh, impotent in the way that I was thinking about what God was up to in my life. I was even ignorant and didn't know. And then I continued to the point where I didn't even feel it anymore. Where life just became blah. Where it's just this is how things are. I had no sensitivity anymore to what God was doing. I couldn't sense him. Feel him. Think about him. Maybe my conscience has become dull. This is just how I live, and this is just normal life, and it's a little bit blah. And sure, I don't feel uh, or experience a, a powerful spirituality, or, or yeah, I have no idea what God is up to. But here's the really scary thing. What happens when you get used to that? It doesn't feel that bad anymore or that good anymore. It just kind of feels blah. What happens when your heart becomes callous? So now our perception is empty, it doesn't really work in terms of having a, a vibrant spiritual life, and we come all the way to the point where we just feel nothing or experience nothing. And when that happens, for a lot of us, the question we ask is, what will make me happy? Or what will make my life uh, meaningful, like I matter? For a lot of us, that's the same question. It's very North American to put those things together. What is a meaningful life? For a lot of us, practically speaking, the truth is we would say, for me to feel good. This is what I want in life. I want to be, we, we say, we want to be happy. Our American friends, they've made that actually very explicit. Part of their Declaration of Independence, I believe, is about the pursuit of happiness. This is what we should all be leading to, a life that is happy. I want to be happy. What will make me happy? Is there a spiritual life that will make me happy? And yet it's so elusive, isn't it? Many of us would say, I'm, I'm really not powerful to make myself happy, and uh, I don't even understand it. I'm ignorant to how I can make myself happy. And I'm even insensitive to how God might want to make me happy. Well, here's how uh, we, I think subconsciously, but oftentimes, try to pursue that goal of being happy. It's the same things that we read in verse 19 here. It says they've become callous, so no longer sensitive to what God is doing. But they've given themselves up to, so uh, whereas, okay, I, I'm not even sensitive to what God is doing, here's what I am trying to sense. Here's what I'm trying to feel. Here's what I'm trying to experience. And it says, uh, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's three things there, three different um, clauses in the Greek that amount to this. We pursue happiness, number one, by feeling good all the time. We think our life is really meaningful when we can avoid pain. Pain has been the enemy. Suffering has been the enemy because happiness has become our ultimate goal for many of us in our society. This is very dangerous because you will, you will at certain points in your life experience pain and suffering. I probably don't have to tell you that. But when your ultimate goal is to be happy and to feel good all the time, sensuality, in other words, 
Pain and suffering isn't just uncomfortable, it feels like your whole life is falling apart. How could this possibly have happened? This isn't the life I envisioned for myself. I never thought we'd be dealing with this as an individual or as a family, even as a church, as the world. How could this possibly be? And I don't understand how God could allow this. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And so we start with this sensuality, whereas I'm trying to feel good all the time. And you know how you do that. There's probably something inside of you that you go, this is the thing that I'm, I think is going to make me happy. It's the next vacation. It's uh, the, the next car. It's moving to a new neighborhood. It's a new job. It's I just things that feel good. For many of us, it's trying to escape feeling bad. You ever catch yourself doing that? Why am I scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through my phone? Maybe it's because in this moment, I just don't want to be present in the things that don't make me feel good. And so I'm sitting in the corner, scrolling, trying to look for little things on Instagram that will make me feel good. Oh, that's a cute puppy. What a nice little picture. Nothing wrong with a nice little picture on Instagram, but what if I'm using it to escape? What if it's hours of, of, of TV? What if it's the extra couple of drinks? What if it's the prescription that you're no longer taking as directed? We want to feel good. We pursue happiness by it. We pursue happiness by getting more stuff. And we read about that, this greedy practice. I'm greedy. Uh, and other ways that we could translate this, um, covetous. I want what somebody else has. I want more. I got to move up. I got to have something else. There's got to be something I can buy, something I can have, something I can experience. And so here in verse 19, there's this idea of, well, there's, there must be just this idea of, of a luxury or a licentiousness. I want to be able to do whatever I want, experience whatever I want. I need more stuff, more success, more status. But I need more of something, which leads to the third thing, which is comparing well. So we find that not only do I need more stuff, but I need more stuff than somebody else. Not just I need a good job, but I need a slightly better title than somebody else. Not just that I have a certain status, but that my status is somewhat higher than someone else's. And so we have this uh, every kind of impurity, this, this desire to take things that are often good things, but to have more of them and to have more than somebody else so that I'm comparing well. And in a lot of these ways, we experience exactly what verse 19 says. We have become insensitive to what God is doing, and we're trying to trigger our senses by using sensuality, and greed to practice every kind of impurity, or in other words, to feel good all the time, to get more, and to compare well, because those things we can feel, can't we? I feel it when I don't compare well. I feel it when there's something I really want and can't have. I feel it when there's a, a better title out there. We feel those things. We have not become callous to them. And so we come to the reality to say it's possible that through living this way, we have given ourselves up to or we're living for things that, to be honest, are going to die, but very much make us feel. And I think maybe they make us feel alive for a short time. Just the, the rush of some of that. This makes me happy. Short term, maybe, but oh, it feels alive. Where I've become callous and insensitive to what God, the creator, who gives us life is doing. You see what's happening? Some of our spiritual senses have become dulled and we've tried to fire our other senses so much up to try and experience certain things and have certain life with things that are flashy and things that are quick. It's like, it's like, it's like spiritual fast food. What can just make me feel good now? It's very deceptive. It's very easy to fall into. I think all of us do. 
But when we're ready, whenever we're ready, and this is a moment, this is what Jesus and other uh, biblical writers talk about repentance, is we can rethink our lives. To go beyond our current mind is what it means to repent. To say, maybe those are not the things that I need to live for, they're the things that I need to die to. And as I die to those things, I can come alive to my Creator, to my family, to my friends, to the world, in a real deep and meaningful sense. I think that's what this passage is all about. You know, these things, I get it. It's just giving you a shot of adrenaline, a shot of, of relaxation, a shot of peace. You think, oh, I'm alive here, but then it doesn't last. And you go, maybe there's something in this, this whole idea that I'm, my life is my own and it's about being happy that I need to die to so that I can really live. This is the key. One of the major keys to the spiritual life is learning. What do we need to live for? And what do we need to die to? That's the dark side, the die-to side. Let's go to the more positive side. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. It's a moment of repentance. Rethink your life. Rethink what's important, what's meaningful, what to live for. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Truth is so interesting. When I think about truth in a religious perspective, I have to be honest, and I often find myself... If I'm going to be critical, I tend to be critical towards myself or, you know, those who are like me. So oftentimes in uh, religious or Christian circles, because I'm very much part of that world, I cringe a little bit when we talk about truth because the assumption for a lot of people is because I'm a Christian and I've read the Bible, I have all the truth. We talked about this last week. We need to be a little bit more humble and go, okay, yes, we've been given truth. And we can talk about that another, what truth have we been given. But, um, but to be humble and to say, that doesn't mean I know everything about everything. That's not really what I think is, is here. Truth here is talking about reality. The reality is in Jesus. Reality is, in our, our, reality is our friend, which means we can deceive ourselves easily, and this is in this passage, with things that are fast and feel good. Oh, it's making me happy. It's easy to be deceived and to think that's what life is all about. The truth is in Jesus. The truth is in God. The truth is, is reality. It's just what is. Part of what we need to learn how to do is to accept reality as it is. Because if God is love and God is for us and God is good and God is revealed in Jesus, then what is, what really truly is reality is good for us. We can accept it, even if it's sometimes hard. Because God is for us. It's okay. What is is fine. But we're really suffering. We're hurting. It's okay. We have a God who has showed us what it looks like to suffer in Jesus. Amen? Oh, I'm hurting. People have rejected me. Do I know anybody in my spiritual tradition that's been rejected and hurt by his closest friends? This is comforting. Jesus has gone before us and done that. What about someone who has experienced extreme failure? I'm failing in my life, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to accept that. I'm supposed to be successful. Do we know anybody in our religious tradition who has failed miserably? How about our Lord and our Messiah whose movement was stopped temporarily when they crucified him in failure. They nailed him in shame, publicly saying, you have failed to a cross. That's who we follow. Reality is our friend, no matter how hard it is. The truth in Jesus. It's okay. It's okay. So now verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and, it's, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Your old self here, some translations will say your sinful desire. It doesn't say sinful desire in Greek. It says your old self. I don't think we're actually supposed to look at this and say your old self is a bad, terrible, horrible person. 
We can talk about sinful nature later. That's not the words that are in here, old self. We all have an old self. Your old self is your self that is about you. It is, here's my life that I need to build up. Oftentimes, it's success, it's money, it's family, it's these things that, again, aren't bad things. But they're not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not going to bring you a whole, meaningful, good life. And your old self is easily deceived by the desires. I just want to go on vacation, but I just want more of this, but I just want to be ahead of this person. I just want to compare well. I just want to have more money. I just want to be... Those are desires, again, that are easy to trick us, easy to deceive us. And if you get these things, then you're going to be happy and have a meaningful life and everything's going to be great. Except then, when you hurt and you suffer and life doesn't go that way, and you go, now I'm confused again, I don't get it. Well, your old self just isn't a big enough, true enough self to be you. And so we put off that self. In other places, it talks about dying to self. Again, Jesus and other New Testament writers, we need to die to self. And this is the way. We need to learn to what we have to die to. Jesus told us, and this is a hard truth, if you want to lose, you find your life, you need to lose it. Take up your cross and follow me. Something needs to die so that something else can live. You need to be reborn. How can I be reborn? Well, you need to put off this self and you need to put on a new self. What does that look like? To be renewed, verses verse 23. So now your old life, which is corrupt and, and easily deceived, but now to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember your mind that was impotent, that was futile? Well, now we need to renew that. We need to start over. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And where do Christians believe that we see the true likeness of God, what God is really like in righteousness, which is how we treat each other, making sure, especially people in need, have what they need, and that we are dismantling the systems that create those needs, and then holiness, that we are gods, we are his, we are set apart to be gods, and so we have these two dimensions of our relationships with one another and our relationship with God, to be in the likeness of him, and we believe as Christians, followers of Jesus, believe that we see the image of God most clearly in the person of Jesus, and so we put off our old self that thinks, my life is all about me, and here's how I get there, and here's how I become happy, and instead, we put on the life of Christ. All the things that God has given us in Christ that we've talked about, we live in grace. It becomes our new operating system. Everything we receive, just like a, a seed buried, but it receives all the nutrients it needs, and it receives the, the moisture, the, the water that it needs until it grows up, and it sprouts a little bit, and then it receives the sunlight it needs, and all the scientific stuff that some of you know that I don't really understand about photosynthesis and blah, 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 so that that thing grows up into what it's supposed to be. And this is true of us. We take all the nutrients from Jesus, all the nutrients from the good news of Jesus, and we say, this is what living is like. This is who we're supposed to be. The old life is the one that's all about you. And maybe for many of us is expressed in, I just want to be happy. Happiness, by the way, is a good thing, but not so much as a goal in your life, because it's the goal in your life, like I said before, suffering and pain will destroy your life. Happiness is a byproduct of a good and meaningful, deep life, lived in relationship to God and others. Joy comes, not because there's no hardship, not because there's no struggle, but because that's who we're created to be. 
created in the image and likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness. The more we live in the map of grace, receiving all that he's given to us and all that he is for us, the more it becomes expressed outwardly. In John 12, Jesus talked about uh, this whole idea of, of dying and becoming so part of a bigger plan, something bigger than you. There were people around, he was, he was heading towards the cross, and there was people around who said, we want to see Jesus. We want to understand this guy. We want our minds to be renewed. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. That's your life on your own. And all the things that you live for, if they will die when you die, aren't going to mean much the moment you die. Some have said that the great spiritual life is preparing us to die before we die. When are we going to die before we die? What will you live for that will not die? If it's just for you, that seed just remains alone and it dies. It is what it is. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever dies to the things you're supposed to die to, your old life that's lived for yourself, will find that they actually bear fruit. What do you mean? Not just alone, part of something bigger. Part of this, this human experience of us actually coming together and being the people of God who participate in the renewal of all things. That's what the church is supposed to be. We talked about that already. But if you just live for yourself... And if you invest in only things that the minute that you die will also die, then that's all there, there really is. How sad. But if you're willing to die first, if you're willing to die to yourself, your, your old self, that you could take on a new self that is part of something so much bigger. This is the great task of the spiritual life, of being reborn, as Jesus calls us to be reborn. The key is to learn to die to that which will not live and to live to that which will never die. When I perceive this, when I can understand this very counterintuitive, countercultural, diff difficult truth that my life is not just for me and becoming happy, that all the things that set off my senses may not be the most important things, although many of them in the right circumstances are not bad, but when I can die to the self that's for all of me and to give myself to God and to others, I find real, true life. And that is what we need to invest in because that never dies. That life lives on for eternity. So what does it mean very practically? I'll go really quickly through the next few verses, but I'd encourage you to go through and look at the implications of how we treat other people based on that kind of grace taking over and for us, hopefully, catching a glimmer of what it means to die to our old self and to put on our new self in righteousness and the likeness of God and in holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You get to be authentic. You don't have to be, pretend to be somebody that you're not. What if I don't compare well? Doesn't matter. You're a child of God. You're not your success. You're not your title. You're not your money. You're not what you drive. You're not, any, you're not your relationship status. You're not your skin color. You're not any of that. You're a child of God. So what? I get to be authentic. And I can be confident in myself because I'm not my old self. I'm my new self created in the image of God. I don't have to put on pretenses. I don't have to lie to anybody. I don't have to, I don't have to spin things. None of that matters. That's old self stuff. We're members of one another. So we're also all the same in that. We're all just children of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We dress it all up, but that's who we are. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. You know, anger, 
Um, really what we get angry at a lot of the time, I get we get really hurt. There's very real hurts that people uh, project onto us and, and we experience that pain. But a lot of times our anger comes from propping up our ego. And when somebody damages our ego, our old self, we get really angry. Well, you're still going to get angry. It's the human experience. But when you live in grace, you'll be able to put that anger away. So yeah, that offense isn't really against me as a child of God. You can't, you can't come against that. That's just, that's against my ego. I get it. They disrespected me as, uh, as a boss or as a spouse or uh, who I think I should be and how I, but I can put aside that anger because I am a child of God living in grace and so are you. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who has a need. I don't have to be living in greed and getting more because God gives me everything that I have so I can go work hard and then share it with everybody because God will continue to provide for me and for you. It doesn't have to be about storing up more and more stuff. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits any occasion. I don't have to get ahead of you. I can build you up. I can prop you up. I can push you up over myself because I don't need to be propped up. I'm here to encourage other people. I don't have to tear people down. I can build people up. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along all malice. This is old stuff stuff. We live in grace now. So what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you because you cannot accept for yourself grace that you will not offer to someone else. It just doesn't make any sense. That's how grace works. You can't accept anything from God. Oh, I'm blessed. I'm chosen. I'm redeemed. I'm his heir. I am his. The only way you can accept all those things as a gift is if they've been given to everyone. And so I see not only the likeness of God in myself, I now see it in every other person, and it changes the way that I live. I don't have to get ahead of people. I don't have to get more than people. In fact, I want to give them the grace that God has given me and the grace that God has given them. I hope that they'll understand more and more and live in that. What a powerful, powerful way to live. And the byproduct, I think, for many of us will be increased joy, happiness. But it's not our goal. Our goal is to be who we were created to be created in the image of God as seen in Christ Jesus. Here's a little exercise maybe to try and practice this. It's called the prayer of examine, and it's something uh, that you can do either in the morning or the evening. Oftentimes, evening is good. It's a way of examining your day and looking for God in your day. As we have often become callous, if we're honest, insensitive to what God is doing in our lives, what if we started practicing a way to look for God in our day every day. Where is God? Where is God working? Where do I see Christ in other people? And as we do that, to become more and more sensitive again to how God's grace is working out in our lives and hopefully to more and more step into the flow of that grace, to receive it and to give it, to receive it and to give it, and to look a lot less like our old self and a lot more like our new self that God has given us. So here's a few questions. And if you Google prayer of examine, you can find lots of people who have given different questions for the prayer of examine. And again, different ways to examine your day. Many of them are very good. These ones I've taken from uh, a pastor and author named Rich Viotis. And he's given just a few questions. So what you might do is say, maybe after dinner or after the kids go to bed uh, or before you go to bed, uh, to say, I'm just going to take even five or 10 minutes in quiet prayer and I'm going to reflect on my day and look for Christ. Here's some questions that perhaps uh, you would ask and allow God to speak into your, your life and then to look for where he might be at work. Number one, did I see anyone through the eyes of Christ's love today? So where did I have an interaction where I just saw someone through the eyes of Christ's love? 
not what I want, my desires, but as Christ would see them. Perhaps someone in need physically, financially, emotionally. Perhaps someone that is, uh, was living out Christ's love towards you that you would celebrate. You would say, wow, Christ did show up. I saw Christ in that other person. Oftentimes, Jesus taught this, that um, we would find him in those who are most in need. And so who did we come into contact today that was most in need? Might be in your house, might be your children, might be changing a diaper and being able to serve your children, your grandchildren. Might be people who are experiencing homelessness as you walk past them in the city. Where did I see Christ? Christ, where did I see people through the eyes of Christ's love? Did I bring my anxious thoughts before God in prayer? So much of our anger, as we talked about, but also our anxiety is often trying to live on our own instead of dependence. But did I bring my anxious thoughts before God in prayer? Did I ask for help? Did I surrender those things? I love that verse that says, cast all your cares or your anxieties upon him. And I think uh, when I think of casting, I think of fishing. And when you're fishing... Uh, you kind of put your finger on the line and you open up the reel and you throw it out but at the right point, just like throwing a ball. If you don't let go, the lure or whatever, your bait doesn't go anywhere. And I feel like that's how we cast our anxieties sometimes. We just hang on to them. You got to let go. Did I do that today? Did I let go? When I offered this to God, did I say, he's going to work on that and he's going to work on it in a better way than I could work on it on my own? Was I present to God's presence in silence? You know, we become so insensitive, I think, to what God is doing because everything's fast, flashy. What makes me feel, you know, I want to go, go experience something that's right now. I don't feel bad anymore. I feel good. It's the escapism we talked about. But did I just sit in silence in reality knowing my reality, whatever it is, even if it's painful, is okay. I'm safe in God's presence. I want to hear him speak in the silence. And then finally, is there any sin I must acknowledge and request God's mercy for? It's a powerful thing. Powerful part of repentance. Is there anything I just need to, I just need to acknowledge, God, this was wrong in my life and request God's mercy for? You know, the beautiful thing about that is we know we will receive it. So threatening sometimes to just be open and honest about the things that we, we know we shouldn't have done or the things we should have done that we didn't do but in the flow of grace. We know God will give us our, his mercy. He'll renew our mind. He can make us sensitive again to what he's doing so that we can live as our new selves. So I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, where do I see Christ in my day? Sometimes it's just so hurried, you know? I'm so busy trying to get things done and trying to get ahead and trying to compare well and trying to get stuff and make money and all that kind of stuff. You know, recently where I've seen God at work, I just walk in nature. Over the next couple of weeks here in Ontario, uh, you'll notice that the leaves are all changing color. So beautiful, isn't it? You know what the leaves are doing? Dying. So beautiful. They're dying. Those leaves are dying and they're going to fall to the ground. And we'll go into a season of winter and we'll all complain about how it's too cold and the snow makes things annoying and all that stuff. And in a way that I fully don't understand, all that's happening now in the dying and what will happen almost in a hibernated state in the winter 
will be preparation for the new life in spring. And we'll see new buds and new leaves that'll be vibrant and green. Because nature is created by God and God understands some things must die for life to continue. Something in us needs to die so that we can truly live, to be born again. It's the powerful key to understanding what those things are. What is it that we need to live for? And therefore, what is it that we need to die to? Heavenly Father, give us the wisdom to know the difference. What is our old self, our old striving? Things that we think are making us happy but aren't. Help us to have the courage to confront reality and what, what is part of our old self and to put that off. God, thank you for the people you've created us to be, to be full people who experience meaning and purpose and love, things that will never, ever die. Thank you. Thank you for catching glimpses of that. Thank you that we see what it looks like to be that kind of person in Jesus who is fully God and fully human and our desire is to be more like him. So forgive us of the things that we focus so much on that keep us from that. Help us to be courageous, to ask for your forgiveness and to receive your mercy, to live in your grace as your beloved children and there to find our new self that you've given to us. And I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that express that kind of grace that changes us and transforms us to everybody that we encounter. And as we do that, that we would see more and more of what you're doing in life and that our calloused hearts would become sensitive again to seeing where you're at work in our lives, in our community, in our city, in our world, to the glory of God in Christ's name, amen.